Today's scripture is from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's great to be back with you. We had a wonderful vacation on Cape Cod. I sustained a bit of a neck injury, and so I had to lay low in yesterday's King of the Raft competition. But I wanted to announce to you that the men of Liberty Fairmount dominated. We at Fairmount are kings of the raft. So I'm thankful for representation. It's a lot, it has a lot to do with our faith. It has a lot to do with our domination on the, on the raft. Um, We are starting a new series today. We're going to be talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Basically, we're going to be looking at the results of everything that we covered in the victory of Jesus' ministry, the triumph of Jesus' ministry. What does that mean for our lives? What are the practical results? And so we're going to be taking each of these weeks in the remaining summer up into the fall when we start a new series. We're going to take a look at each aspect of the fruit. And it's important for you to know that the word, we'll get to this and we'll cover it a little bit more later, but the word in Greek for fruit here is singular. Do you know that? A lot of people I hear throughout Christian life as they think about the fruit of the Spirit often misstate it. They say the fruits of the Spirit. It's wrong. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And each one of these things that we see is an aspect of the fruit. An aspect of the fruit. A different way of seeing what the character of God looks like working through us in our lives in practical ways. Uh, So we're going to be taking a look at the fruit of the Spirit. Today we're going to look at love. Now, some of you have heard the story that I told of when I climbed Pike's Peak. I camped at 10,000 feet. I climbed and navigated with a compass to 12,000 feet. And it was so beautiful. It was so beautiful. I remember I took a camera along and I took my Bible along. And I was looking out from the top of this mountain in Colorado at all of the beauty around me. And I was thinking, I opened up the Psalms. And and I looked at the the heavens declare the glory of God. And the skies proclaim his handiwork. And I looked around and I thought, yeah, that's right. But then something happened as I was reading. I, I realized, and God's spirit testified with my spirit, that his word is much more beautiful than than anything that I saw in creation, though I love creation, I love being out in the outdoors. So I, you've, you've heard the story, and I was up on the mountain, and as I started down, I cramped up, my legs cramped up. And uh, I, I found a pathway down the mountain, and I made it down the pathway. I, I, I neglected my compass bearings, and I made it down the pathway. And you know what happened? I was facing a river with a 400-foot sheer wall that I couldn't climb. I've got achy legs. I could barely make it further. The sun is setting. What am I going to do? And it turns out, the end of that story, that I had altitude sickness, and there was a, a bit of pulmonary edema starting. I made it to the hospital. I was fine. I was fine. But the, the message there is that heights are very dangerous to us at times. Now, when we get into the love of God, we risk a nosebleed because it's so high. It's so lofty. It's so beautiful. And I have to take us up quickly. So let's be careful together. Let's pray for a moment for strength together. And then let's look at the love of God worked out through his spirit into our lives. All right? Let's pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, we need your strength, we need your protection, we need your guidance as we begin to ponder the depths and the wonder of your love for us. 
worked out through your spirit in our lives in practical ways. What does faith in the good news of your gospel look like? What does faith in you, Jesus, look like? We want to know. We want to grow in that. We want to grow in our love for you. We want to grow in our love for one another. We want to grow in our love for this city and for the world. Would you do that now as we ponder your word together, as we explore it together? Be with us in your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to uh, be talking about the results of Jesus' work in your life. The results of Jesus' work in your life. So we're going to look at some background for that. We're going to look at what it means, and we're going to look at how to get it. We're going to look at background, what it means, and how to get it. First background. When God takes us to be his people... When you think about what faith is, what does faith in the gospel do? What happens? What does it do to us? What transpires? When God takes us to be his people, which is what happens in faith, he loves us and is present with us. He loves us and is present with us. He's committed to us. We said that after the resurrection, he sends his spirit to dwell in us as a temple. Do you know what 1 Corinthians, Paul says in 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians 3, 16, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Simone Weil put it this way. She wrote this. In 1938, I was suffering from splitting headaches. Each sound hurt me like a blow. I discovered a poem called Love by George Herbert, which I learned by heart. And often at the culminating point of a violent headache, I made myself say it over, concentrating all of my attention upon it and clinging with all my soul to the tenderness it enshrines. I used to think I was merely reciting it as a beautiful poem, but without my knowing it, the recitation had the virtue of a prayer. It was during one of these recitations that Christ himself came down and took possession of me. In my arguments about the insolubility of the problem of God, I had never foreseen the possibility of that, of a real contact, person to person, here below, between a human being and God. Relationship. The Bible says that we know God in our faith, not merely that we hope or suppose that he exists. Christianity, therefore, rules out pantheism. You know what pantheism is? It's impersonal. It's the belief that God and the world are identical. The most famous Western defender of pantheism is Spinoza, who claimed that God and nature are two names for the same reality, which has mind and material extension as two of its attributes. The term is also used to describe absolute monism of Hinduism which holds that the whole of reality is identical with one absolute, that is God, and the distinctions we draw between objects are just part of appearances. Christianity does not hold to that. God comes into your life personally and takes a hold of you personally. He relates to you personally, not impersonally. But Christianity also denies the idea of deism, which is the, the, the idea that God is no more than powerful and distant. Deism is the belief that God created the world 
but is not sustaining it providentially. In other words, though God exists in deism, he has no interaction with the created world. This term is also used to support the view that true religion is a natural religion grounded in reason rather than authoritative special revelation. In deism, God does not speak. We have a God who speaks to us personally, person to person, through his spirit dwelling in us, testifying to his word. Now, as Christians, we believe that God's promises are absolutely sure. Why? Why do we believe this? We believe it because they're based on his own oath, which cannot lie. Read the book of Hebrews sometimes in the Bible, in the New Testament. Hebrews 6 says says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. He swore by himself. That which is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. God's promises are true. They're steadfast. It's a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. Similarly, Paul said that all scriptures God breathed. It's profitable for teaching, for, for rebuking, for re- correcting and training in righteousness that the people of God may be complete, equipped for every good work we've talked about and he prayed for reading our Bibles. Do we know God's word? It's how he speaks to us through his spirit. Are we learning it together? We need to. Are you reading it every day? We can look more at how to do that together in profitable ways, in ways that will build you up in your faith. But it's necessary. You need God's word to contradict your own word because your own word is not steadfast like God's word is. It's not trustworthy like God's word is. We have... A lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. No prophecy of Scripture, Peter writes, comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter speaks of Scripture as God's own words, which provides sure guidance in a world where false teaching abounds. You need discernment. You need to know how to discern what's true and what's false. So we have the background for God's love. But what does it mean? Well, in order to understand God's spirit, bearing fruit of love in your life, we first have to understand how God's spirit and love are related. John writes this, God is love. This is a statement the Bible makes about no other creation or creature. No other part of creation or or creature. No other being. Now, as human beings, we express love. We use that expression, love and to love, and it has a wide range of meaning, doesn't it? It's a wide range of meaning when we use the word love. He loves his new job. They've fallen in love. She loves photography and ice cream. Right? In a similar way, because God is a person who enters into various relationships and enters into relationship with you, 
The Bible gives us a picture of God's love in various ways. Here are just some of them. So that we can understand what God bearing the fruit of love through his spirit into our lives and out into the world means. The fullness of God's love within the Trinity. That's one picture that we see in Scripture. What is the Trinity? Now, this is hard. I told you that we have to go high fast. Get ready. This is the simplest I've seen it put. John Frame, in his book, Salvation Belongs to the Lord, it's an introduction to systematic theology. He writes this. Much that the Bible teaches about the Trinity is very mysterious, and we must bow in humility as we enter into this holy realm. We can summarize the doctrine of the Trinity in five assertions. You ready? You might want to write these down and think about them. They hold together. It's as simply as I've seen it put. All right? They hold together. First, God is one. The Bible teaches that. God is one. Second, God is three. The Bible teaches that. Three, the three persons are each fully God. The Bible teaches that. Four, each of the persons is distinct from the others. And five, the three persons are related eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You want to know the name of God? The greatest revelation of his name. Go to all nations and baptize in the name of what? God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right. So when thinking about the fullness of God's love within the Trinity, we must understand that God's love at its root is unconditioned by anything in us. That's important. It's unconditioned by anything in us. Whenever he acts in love towards us, it's out of a complete satisfaction that he already enjoys within himself as the Trinity. The Apostle John writes of the love of the Father for the Son and his desire to show the Son everything that he does, ensuring that all honor goes to the Son, even as, the, as people honor the Father. John also writes of the love of the Son for the Father, shown in the perfection of the Son's obedience. The Father and the Son together send the Spirit into the world, and the Spirit bears witness to Jesus. Now, love within the Trinity is a very part of God's nature. Love within the Trinity is a very part of God's nature. Jesus' work on the cross is motivated by his nature. For the cross comes about because the Father determines that all will honor the Son, and because the Son obeys so perfectly that he accomplishes his Father's commission and he goes to the cross. This love, a part of God's nature as the Trinity, is a critical model of the unity that you and I are to have together in the body of Christ under the lordship of Jesus. The kind of flourishing, the kind of love, the kind of intimacy, the kind of relationship, the kind of closeness, the kind of intentionally looking out for one another and lifting one another up and not lifting ourselves up is the kind of love that we're to have in community together. It's the kind of love that we sometimes see through God's blessing already. It's the kind of love that we need to strive for as we learn to love each other even more, even more deeply, even better. So there's Trinitarian love, but there's also the loving presence of God in his promises. We see that in the Bible as well. 
the essence of God's promise is, I will be your God and you will be my people. God said that to Israel under Moses and in the New Testament to the, uh, in the, to the people of God there. He declared this promise many times throughout Scripture. Too many to go into here right now. This means that the Lord is the one who takes his people to be his own. He places his name upon us so that he dwells with us and we with him. In the Old Testament, God literally dwelled with Israel as he placed his visible presence in the tabernacle and then in the temple. In the New Testament, Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. He is God tabernacling among us. You can see that in John 1, 14. And after his resurrection, just like we talked about, he sends the Spirit to dwell in us as in a temple. Now, what does this mean to us? When you believe in the gospel, God's Spirit dwells in you in order to bear fruit of love. In order to bear the fruit of love. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 7 that when we believe the gospel, we, quote, belong to another. To him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may what? Bear fruit for God. Do you hear that language? It's intimate language. It's spousal language. It's language that says just as in a marriage as a man and a woman bear fruit in childbearing. So in our union with God, we are to bear the fruit of his love into the world. It's that intimate. It should make you a little uncomfortable. It's that close. So we have background. We have what it means. Simone Weil had quoted or had taken that poem by George Herbert called Love. I'm going to read it to you now so that you have a sense for what this picture is like. George Herbert wrote this. Love bade me welcome. Yet my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew near to me, sweetly, questioning if I lacked anything. Uh, a guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. The language of relationship. It's the language of friendship. It's the language of spousal love. It is intimate. It knows you to your very core. And it says, I love you. And nothing can take that from you. Because I have secured it. And I am steadfast in my word. Not even your failing can take it away. Sit and eat. So background, we looked at background, we looked at what it means, but how do we get it? Christian love can be understood and shown only when we see it to be a reflection of God's love. 
We can see Christian love when we see how God's love fits into the Bible storyline and is related to the person and work of our Savior Jesus. If the mission of the Son is the result of love within the Trinity, it's also the fruit of the Father's love for this lost world. It's the measure of that love. If the measure of that love is the Son Himself, in love the Father makes a gift of an entire people to his son. In love, the son perfectly performs his father's will and preserves all who are given to him. The entire plan of redemption finds as its wellspring the love of God poured out on sinners who are God's enemies and far from being lovely within themselves. My old Westminster Seminary professor, Ed Clowney, used to say this, God chose you as his people does not mean your choice. Does not mean your choice. So this is one of the distinctives of God's love. What does it look like to have his love working through his spirit, through our hearts, bearing fruit into the world? While with only rare exception, human love in this fallen world is poured out only on that which the lover finds lovely. This is, again, with rare exception, counterfeit love. You understand? Counterfeit love is selfish affection. When you love someone because you find them lovely, more often, not all the time, but more often than not, you're not attracted to the person, but how their love makes you feel about yourself. You're not attracted to the person, but how their love makes you feel about themselves. In contrast, God's love springs from within himself. It's not dependent upon the loveliness of the person or the thing that is love. That should comfort you, friends. When you fall down, when you fail, when you're lonely, when you're lost, when you're in need of a friend, remember that God's love for you does not spring from you. It springs from within himself, which is why it's so steadfast. Further, like the love of God, the love we are to display when we believe the gospel the fruit of his spirit in us is the love shown in God's faithfulness to his ancient promises brought into clearer focus in the work of Jesus. Jesus response to the person who asked him, what is the greatest commandment was this to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Now that wasn't new, but that brought together two crucial passages of old Testament Deuteronomy six and Leviticus 19. When Christians love, whether God or fellow Christians, it's in response to God's love and faithfulness to his promise. If you're a Christian, God's spirit does not dwell in you just to bring you personal forgiveness and peace. But to bring peace and shalom to the world. The work of the spirit of God is not only to save souls but also to care for and cultivate the community and the face of the earth and where we live and the relationships that we have. C.S. Lewis writes it this way. He writes, Our imitation of God in this life, that is, our willed imitation as distinct from any of the likeness which he has impressed upon our natures and states, must be an imitation of God incarnate. Our model is the Jesus, not only of Calvary, 
but of the workshop, of the roads, the crowds, the clamorous demands and surly oppositions, the lack of all peace and privacy, the interruptions. For this, so strangely unlike anything we can attribute to the divine life in itself, is apparently not only like, but is the divine life operating under human conditions. Your everyday matters to God. And when you see Jesus losing the love of the Father on the cross so that you could always have the love of the Father, it changes you. It's how you get the fruit of love born out through the Holy Spirit into the world by looking at what he's done for you. It enables you to pour out the love you've been shown in the gospel into every nook and cranny of your life. Every aspect, every perspective, every relationship. So in considering God's spirit, bearing the fruit of love in your life, we've covered first what it, the background. The background. We had to understand that there's some background to what God's love in your life means. Personal relationship is the key point. That faith in the gospel is first and foremost personal encounter, personal relationship with the living God. Second, we talked about what it means. The key point is that God is love in his very nature. And when you believe in the gospel, God's spirit dwells in you in order to bear the fruit of love that he's shown out into the world. And lastly, we covered how to get it. And the key point is that the gospel is not just the way we are saved. It's not just moving from an unsaved to a saved checkbox. It's the way that we do everything in the Christian life. It's the way that we grow to be more and more like God's own character. Loving others, even though they are unlovely, just as God has loved us. What are we talking about? What's the main idea? If you want to love God... If you want to love one another, if you want to love our city, if you want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus, then the thing to do is to first receive God's love for you in the gospel. So what are our next steps? Take some time in prayer, together in discussion. Understand what it means that God's Spirit bears fruit in your lives? Do you have personal relationship with God through the work of Jesus? Have you encountered Him personally, like Simone Weil wrote about? You don't sense that all the time. You don't even feel it all the time. But if you go without it, or if you've gone without it, you need to draw near to God and ask Him for that. Also, see Jesus as the source and wellspring of that fruit. Without Him, we are nothing. It's only because Jesus lost the love of the Father that we can show this kind of love, not only to God, but to one another and to our city. And lastly, we want our love for God and one another in our city coming from God's spirit to flourish. We want our church to be a different place because God dwells here. We want our neighborhoods to be rewoven and the fabrics of our neighborhoods to have justice and mercy woven into them because God's love works through his spirit in our midst. We want Philadelphia to be a different kind of place because God's love is working through his people, not just us at Fairmount, 
But all of the Liberty Churches, not just the Liberty Churches, but all of the churches who proclaim his name and lift up his name in glory and build one another up in that name and his promises that we might bear witness to the world that's looking on that we have a Savior and he's changing things. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you that your character is love. Thank you that through your spirit you can transform us, that we might love others beyond counterfeit love, beyond the opposite of love, but with true love of the grace that you've shown to us. Father, this week as we go into our weeks and we encounter things that are unlovely, be with us. Remind us of your love to us, those who are unlovely to you, those who are in rebellion, in rebellion against you, that you still showed us love and faithfulness, that you worked on our behalf, that you stood in. Let us be reminded of that and let us be changed so that we might love others radically differently than we do now. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.